Today's scripture is Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Be to God. Good morning. I want you to imagine uh, that you had a long day at work. Some of you are like, that's not hard to imagine at all. Um, But it's not a long day uh, in an air-conditioned office filled with Zoom meetings or business lunches. It's a long day of hard labor, construction, working outside with your hands, back-breaking, callous-making work, right? You work from dawn to dusk, and you cannot remember the last time you had a day off because it was never. It was never. You don't have an HR department that uh, is tracking your sick pay or your vacation time. Uh, You don't even have weekends. And you get home, and there's a man who comes to your town, and he's kind of an odd guy. Uh, He comes in with a message. He says that God is speaking through him. But in fact, he doesn't actually talk. He talks to another guy, and that guy talks, right? Um, And the message is, God sent him to set you free, to set you free. And immediately after this guy comes, he shows up, weird stuff starts to happen in your town. Water's turning to blood. There's night coming in the middle of the day. Frogs are hopping all around. Hey, at least you got a a day off because of the frog thing, right? You couldn't go to work that day. Back east, you get snow days. In Egypt, you get frog days. But the weirdest thing happens when you get a knock at the door, and the man opens it and comes in. And he says, hey, God is going to visit his wrath and his punishment on this place. He's seen the injustice. He's seen the oppression that's been committed against you. But don't worry. The punishment isn't going to visit this house. It's not going to visit you because you're going to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood over the doorway. And so you put your faith in the word of God and you put your faith in the sacrificial lamb and you're saved. You're saved. God's wrath, his punishment passes over your home. And not only that, but you get up, you and your family, you and your neighbors, your tribe, your whole nation, and you walk out of slavery. You walk toward freedom. You actually walk through a sea. And when you get to the other side of the Red Sea and you look out, it looks a lot like that stretch of freeway between Tucson and Chandler. (laughs) It's the broad place um, that Josh, or sorry, that the Johnsons were mentioning. Uh, it's, it's wilderness. It's vacant, right? I wonder how long uh, it would be before the complaining started. <laughs> For the Israelites, when they left Egypt, it was three days. Three days uh, before the complaining started. I think I probably wouldn't make it three minutes, to be honest. I'd look around and I'd be like, seriously, this is freedom? What are we doing here? Where's the water? Where's the food? But after three days, the Israelites were not only complaining, uh, they were actually looking over their shoulders and saying, we wish we were back in Egypt. 
Slavery was better than this. At least we had meat. I wish I was back in Egypt. I wish I was a slave again. My kids laugh when they read that story. They think it's so silly that the Israelites uh, forgot everything that God did for them. And it just happened. I mean, it was minutes before this, right? It just happened. They forgot everything. But the reality is um, it's, it's uncomfortable for us because we do the exact same thing. How quick are we to forget everything that God has done for us? How God has saved us with a sacrificial lamb. How his wrath has passed over us. How he's made a way for us to be freed from slavery. How he's had us pass through not the waters of the Red Sea, but the waters of baptism. And now we stand on the other side in freedom. How easy is it for us to forget when we look at that wilderness and we start to think, this Christian life looks pretty tough. It looks pretty hard. I'm not sure I want to press on. Some of you maybe have a wilderness season that you're facing right now. Maybe you're wondering, uh, is God there? Is he listening? Can he see me? Maybe you're wrestling with doubt or you're wrestling with deconstruction in your faith right now. Some of you have a wilderness season that, a season that you're in right now where you just feel like the rhythms are mechanical and dry. You're not sure that you have an emotional connection with the Lord right now. Some of you are facing a wilderness season right now where you're going back to the same temptations, the same sin patterns in your life that have been plaguing you forever, and you're wondering, am I actually free from my slavery? Maybe I should go back. Maybe I should go back. So how do we persevere? We must. We have to. How do we persevere through the wilderness of the Christian life? The truth is that if we're drawing on our own power, on our own resources, on what we have internally, uh, our religion, we don't have it. We don't have it. We're not moving forward. The passage that we're looking at, though, this morning in Romans tells us that we don't have to pull on those resources. Praise God. We have external help. The Holy Spirit, if we have put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit uh, guides us and walks with us. We are not alone in the wilderness. So let's pray, and then we're going to uh, take a look at Romans chapter 8 this morning. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray and we ask that you would meet us here. Whenever we open up the scriptures, it's our goal and our hope uh, that you would come alive to us in a new way, fresh, that we could see you face to face. We want you to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit here from these words, but not only to teach us so that we have knowledge, but that we would be transformed, that we would look more like you. So do that in us, we pray. Amen. All right, well, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we've been going through a series in Romans chapter 8. I think this is the fourth, third or fourth week of this series that we've been going through. And what's really interesting about Romans chapter 8, actually, raise your hand if you need a Bible. We have a couple ushers standing at the back ready to give Bibles out. No shame. If you forgot your Bible today, please raise your hand so you can follow along with us. We have copies in English and in Spanish. So uh, if you prefer Spanish, if that's your heart language, raise your hand and say Espanol, and someone will bring a copy in Spanish to you. Uh, we're going through Romans 8, like I said. And uh, what is really interesting about Romans 8 is that there's all kinds of echoes of the Exodus story that we just heard, that I just shared. All kinds of echoes. 
In fact, it begins with the echo of Passover and being freed from the the punishment, freed from wrath, freed from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in the sacrificial lamb in Christ, right? And not only that, but we're freed from our slavery. We are no longer slaves to do the deeds of the body anymore, right? We're no longer slaves to the flesh, but we are actually free in Christ. There's an echo of the Exodus that's operating in the background of Romans 8. And then when we get to Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, specifically there's echoes of this weird wilderness period, this weird season in Israel's life where they're in the wilderness. Uh, But the, the cool thing, the amazing thing, is that God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave the Israelites there. Um, They're not just free from condemnation. They're not just freed from their slavery. God actually personally accompanies them in the wilderness, and we'll see that he actually personally accompanies us through the journey of the Christian life. He walks with us. He guides us. He leads us. We have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit operates in this text in kind of three different ways, three things I want to point out. He's the spirit of adoption. He's the spirit of affection. And then I snuck two points into one point. He's the spirit of imitation and inheritance. The spirit of adoption, the spirit of affection, and the spirit of imitation and inheritance. So let's start with the spirit of adoption, looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 14. It says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or sons and daughters, as children, right? Now, um, the first thing I want to point out is that sometimes we have this understanding of what it means to be a child of God that I think mostly comes from culture, uh, that every person is a child of God, that everybody is God's child. And here's what I want to affirm about that before I say no, that's not quite true. Here's what I want to affirm. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Everybody. It does not matter what their intellectual capability is. It does not matter what their political affiliation is. It does not matter if they're abled or unable to do certain things physically. Every single human being is made in God's image and therefore has dignity and value and worth. It's inherent in who they are, okay? Everybody, everybody, even the person you're thinking of right now that you're like, that person? Yes, that person too, okay? But... The Bible does not talk about every single person being a child of God, at least not in that way, right? Um, When we see and encounter the term sons of God, adopted by God, the language is really reserved for those who are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, led to put their faith in Christ. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 say this, But to all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, Christ's name, God the Father gave the right to become children of God. So who are children of God? Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord. Those are the children of God. Jesus himself explains that in order to be a part of the kingdom, we have to be born again. He says in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here's my appeal before I even go any further into this. If you're sitting here this morning and you're checking out this faith thing, 
and you're trying to figure out, is Christianity for me? Is this what I want to believe in? Uh, To become a child of God, you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, and everything changes in that moment when you do it, okay? So my invitation to you is if you're checking it out, um, keep checking out Jesus. Talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to talk with you more about what does it look like to put your faith and your trust in Christ. And when you do, you become a son. You become a daughter of God the Father. But the language here is not the language of birth uh, in, in Paul's letter. It's the language of adoption, right? He says specifically, um, he says that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Um, so I want to acknowledge, first of all, I am not, I'm not an expert in the field of adoption. Uh, that's not my area of expertise. I don't really have an area of expertise, to be honest. Um, but there is an absolute wealth of knowledge in this room. Uh, there are people who are adoptive parents, foster parents, kinship. Um, we are invested financially in, in those areas. And there are also people who are adopted um, or foster here in this room. And for those of you who are a part of that, you understand at a fundamental level this passage deeper than the rest of us. You understand this deeper uh, in a more rich way than I understand it. But at a base level, uh, this is what Katie J. Davis says adoption is. She says, adoption is a redemptive response to tragedy that happens in this broken world. It's a redemptive response to tragedy that happens in this broken world. The tragedy is that you and I were enslaved to sin and to fear and to death. You and I were battered and bruised and broken. We were rebels that chose to sin, but also sin has been committed against us, and we have been trapped in a system that only leads to fear. That's what Paul says. The spirit of slavery is fear. That's a tragedy, and God's response was not to stay distant. It wasn't to look away from us. His response was to enter in to our pain and our suffering. He spares us from wrath like the Passover lamb, but not only that, he also frees us from the slavery that's trapped us. But not only that, he actually chose us. He chose you. He wanted you. You're no longer a slave. You're a son. You're no longer in chains. You are chosen by God. Stories really shape our identity. Uh, They shape our imagination. They form us. They remind us of truth. They help us to press on. They help us to persevere through difficult seasons of life, right? They're formational in our identity and our character. For Israel, the Exodus was an identity-forming story, right? If you read through the Old Testament and you wonder, why, does, why do they keep talking about the Exodus? Why do they keep talking about what God did in Egypt, right? Psalm 78, I just read that this morning. It's, all, it's just a re-narration of the Exodus. It's because uh, identity is formed by story. And so for Israel, this is their core story. This is who they are. Remember what God did for you when you were slaves in Egypt. He delivered you. Remember. For us, our identity-forming story is the gospel message. It's the good news of Jesus. This is the most important thing about you. You are chosen. 
You are saved. You are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And now you are his child. You belong to him. So how do you press on? How do you persevere when you're facing the broad place, the wilderness? First and foremost, regularly remember the good news of the gospel in your life. Renarrate it. It's your identity-forming story. You are adopted into God's family. The spirit of adoption. The second point here, spirit of affection. Now, I want to say, you're not going to read anywhere in the Bible something called the spirit of affection. I just made that up this morning, okay? The spirit of affection. Uh, but I hope that you'll see what I'm trying to do here by using that language. Romans 8.15 continues like this. Uh, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, Abba, is a, it's, a, it's an interesting term here. Uh, it's a term of familiarity. It's the closest we have in English is like daddy or papa. A number of years ago, I was uh, at a Christmas uh, gathering with all my family, and my aunt, who's related to me by marriage, was there with her dad. Um, and her and my cousins all called her dad Poppy. That's what they called him, Poppy. So I only knew this man as Poppy. And I called him Poppy, and my family called him Poppy. And uh, one Christmas, my aunt lovingly told us that Poppy means daddy, and she actually asked us not to call him Poppy, but to call him Charles, because that's his name. Because he's her Poppy, not our Poppy. He's her Poppy. See, here's the interesting thing. God is our poppy. He's our daddy. He's our papa. That's what Paul is saying here. Jewish literature doesn't really refer to God in this way, in this kind of level of familiarity, until we get to Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus calls him father all the time, all the time. In fact, our handbook for prayer delivered by Jesus to us begins how? Our Father, a level of familiarity with God that was radical. It was maybe even absurd to the people who were listening to it. God, if we dare to say it, if we dare to believe it, is our Papa. He loves us with a familiar love that only can be explained by a good and perfect Father who loves his kids. Our fathers here on earth, even the best ones, they're poor imitations of this amazing truth. God loves his children. But I want you to notice something. Put it back up, uh, verses 15. It's not saying God the Father loves you like a little child. It's not saying that, actually. It's actually saying that the Spirit of God so transforms you, so transforms your affections, so transforms your emotions that you actually love God like a little child loves a father. Not only that, the Spirit of God moves you not to log logical interventions and pleas. Uh, it's not like we come to God and we say, Hello, Father, I require your assistance. Uh, in a matter of utmost urgency, at your convenience, will you please aid me in my troubles? It's not, that's not what's happening here. 
The Spirit moves us to cry out, to scream out. Those of you uh, who have little kids at home, the families who are all up here, you probably, you know what this is like in the middle of the night, right? Or maybe you remember, or maybe you are a child here in this room and you still do this. I don't know. When a child wakes up and they have a nightmare, their instinct is not to have logical thoughts. They're not debating. Should I talk to my dad? Should I ask my mom to come in here? They're not trying to weigh out the pros and cons, the risks of maybe mommy or daddy will be mad at me. They're not doing that. There's one instinct, the most basic request, that can only be explained when they cry out, Daddy. Daddy. And you come running. I come running. And when he comes, when the Father comes, Paul says that he whispers to us by the Spirit, you're mine. Daughter, son, you're mine. God changes our status from slaves to son. He moves us from chains to chosen, but he also transforms us inside our our affections, our emotions. Uh, He moves us toward an experiential reality of relationship with the good father. He changes our affections for God. So perseverance, how how does this help you with perseverance? Well, uh, a transformed affections that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit moves us frequently to prayer, often, often. And we don't need to have logical words. We are moved like a child to just ask for help. Lord, I need you. I need you. Come. So the spirit of adoption, uh, the spirit of affection, and then my sneaky two-point point here, the spirit of imitation and inheritance. Uh, if you're anything like me, you probably don't like discomfort. <laughs> it's kind of an American trait, right? We, we love being comfortable. We love being cushy. Um, I'd, I kind of I run away from anything that's going to make me feel really uncomfortable. Um, but Paul doesn't really give us much of an option when we get to verse 17. Look what it says in verse 17. He says, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Oh, that's so nice. Then he says this. Why are you ruining it, Paul? <laughs> Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Ah. One friend this week asked me, somewhat facetiously, I think, I think, um, he said, Pastor Keith, does that mean that I need to suffer in order to be saved? Is that what it's saying? Provided that we suffer with him, then we'll also be glorified with him. Does that mean we need to suffer in order to be saved? And um, I don't think that that's what it's saying. I don't think that's what it's saying. But I do think that Paul is saying it's not that you need to suffer in order to be saved. It's that by faith, you actually identify with the one who already suffered for your sake to save you. You identify with his death and his resurrection. And even doing that is is dying to self, repenting, turning away from yourself and moving toward Christ. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. We should not actually be surprised by this at all. This is actually what Jesus tells people who are wanting to follow him. He says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says, "Uh, if you want to follow me, uh, this is what you need to do. 
deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. That's the instruction that he gives. Death and suffering are a part of imitating Christ. Uh, Paul Miller calls this the J-curve. Can you skip ahead to the J-curve uh, picture there? Yeah. So you see, Paul Miller, uh, he's an author, and he wrote a book called J-Curve. I recommend it. It's great. Uh, he wrote another number of other books that are all great as well, actually. Um, but on the left, we see that all of our J-Curves are rooted in the first J-Curve, Jesus' J-Curve. It starts with Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, and it moves through death on the way to new life. But we also have a J-curve. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, like I said, we are denying self. We're putting self to death. We're repenting of sin, and we're moving toward Jesus' death and resurrection and identifying with him in that. Then we are brought to new life. That's actually what baptism, which we had last week, is all about, right? Someone who's being baptized, they go under the water. They're going into the grave, They're going into the ground. They're identifying with Jesus in his death. And when they come back out, they're identifying with Jesus' resurrection, with new life. This is the first J-curve. If you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, it goes through his J-curve. That's the one that actually does something for you. And then you put your faith in that J-curve, right, by going through your own J-curve. But not only that, we have a number of kind of smaller J-curves that we live with every day. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of the rhythm of being a Christ follower. I'm going to highlight two of them here. The love J-curve. The love J-curve is where you move toward someone else in love. Now, for me, this often is uh, when I'm in a standoff with somebody in a conflict. And by somebody, I mean Desiree. I mean, this is, you know, (laughs) we usually get in the standoff, right? Somehow dishes are always involved. I should talk to somebody about that. Um, so in a standoff, right, and have a choice, and your choice is, am I going to be the one who dies to self, dies to what I want, and am I going to move toward this other person in love? And it's risky, right? Because you want to hold on to your rights. You want to retaliate. You want to be bitter. You want to be angry. I want to stand firm until I win, and it never works. I'm just going to be honest. That never works. The love J-curve means that you lay down your rights to retaliation and you move towards somebody else in love. And in doing so, you're doing something of imitating Christ. You're dying to self. And on the other side of that, there's a resurrection in your relationship with that other person, right? Your, Your relationship becomes closer together, more intimate. You're more united. That's the love J curve. And it happens in all kinds of ways, right? Maybe with coworkers or friends. Um, The repentance J-curve is where we die to our own sin. This is actually what Paul has been talking about pretty much in this whole chapter. He's saying, put to death the deeds of the body. He's saying, put to death the sin that dwells in you. Repent from sin. Confess sin. Leave it behind. And in doing so, you're, you're dying, and then you're coming out on the other side. I keep doing it backwards. You're coming out on the other side looking more like Christ in a resurrected reality, right? So the J-curve, is the, it's the pattern of the Christian life. It's the shape of the Christian life. Um, and ultimately, uh, it's how we reenact and imitate Christ to the world. This is how we show people what Jesus is like. 
Every time we go through a J-curve, no matter how small or how big, what we're actually doing is we're telling the story of how Jesus died for us and rose again to new life. And we're being shaped with that story. This is how Paul Miller describes it. He says, Our suffering doesn't pay for our sins, but it does imprint us with the image of Jesus. If we neglect the present J-curves, suffering becomes strange, primarily to be avoided. If we miss the crucial role of our present union with Christ, we will lose a vision for the beauty of Jesus imprinted on us. We actually become more like Christ as we imitate him in his death and his resurrection. This is an important part of perseverance. Repentance, love, imitating Christ in our death and resurrection. Uh, And ultimately, Paul gives us some hope here at the end of it, right? He says that we're raised to glory. And he talks about an inheritance. Uh, Put back on those verses, verse 17, if you would. If we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So once again, we have another echo of the Exodus here. When an Israelite would have heard uh, the word inheritance, they would have thought of a very specific thing right away. They would have thought of the land of Canaan. That was their inheritance. In fact, that's the language when you get to Joshua, right, of splitting up the land. They're actually splitting up their inheritance. They received the promises of Abraham, their father, and their inheritance is the good and plentiful and bountiful land, right? Well, what about for us? (laughs) It's not the land of Canaan. What's amazing is our inheritance is actually the whole earth. It's the whole creation, the renewed and restored creation. Maybe if you feel skeptical, I'll put this up here. This is Jesus. Blessed are the meek. For what? They shall inherit the earth. He also says this. Someone asks him a question, Mark chapter 10. And the the question is, how do I inherit eternal life? The inheritance is is heaven. It's earth and it's heaven. Keep going. Paul also describes it this way in Romans chapter 4. Just a few chapters earlier, he's talking about the promise made to Abraham that he would be an heir of the world. The whole world is the inheritance. And then lastly, go to Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So the language here of inheritance is meant to draw our minds to inheriting the whole earth, inheriting heaven, and being co-heirs with Christ who inherits all things. What it's pointing us ahead to is a secure future in the new creation. A secure future in the new creation. See, one day, suffering will come to an end. One day, fear will be gone. As Maverick City Music says, fear is not our future. (laughs) You are. Our inheritance is secure um, in the new creation reality where Jesus is going to come back and he is going to rid the world of evil He's going to rid the world of suffering. He's going to rid the world of sin and pain and death. It's going to be no more, and we are going to be raised to new life in new resurrected bodies, glorified like Jesus, to live out the rest of our days in a kingdom that's here on a restored and renewed earth, free from sin forever. That's our inheritance. It's coming. It's sure. It's secure. And so... Paul's not saying suffering just for suffering's sake, suffering that'll never end, endless suffering. No, on the other side of wilderness is the inheritance. It's sure. 
It's coming. I want to close this way. Uh, for those of you who maybe you're sitting in a season of wilderness right now, a season of you're not sure how you're going to endure, how are you going to press on, um, you're wondering maybe you should head back to Egypt. Maybe you should go back to slavery. Remember that God has given you his Holy Spirit. You are not alone. He is with you. He is accompanying you in this journey through life. Remember that that Spirit of God is the one who adopted you. Remind yourself of the gospel story. You are chosen. Remember that the Holy Spirit, even when you don't have the affections within yourself, is stirring and changing your own affections so that you can cry out to your Father in heaven. Papa, Abba, go to him in prayer. Remember that he is the one who is moving you to dying to self, to imitating Christ in your everyday life through repentance and love. And remember that you have a secure inheritance on the horizon it is coming. Hope is on the horizon. So press on. Don't give up. He is with you. He is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the good news uh, that we're, we're not alone. We're not alone in the wilderness seasons of our life. You accompanying us. You're with us. You give us everything that we need. You supply us with what we most need. You're even the one who changes us from the inside out so that we can love you and we can move towards you. We pray that we would be drawn into a deeper and deeper understanding of our adoption, a deeper and a deeper affection for you, Father, and that we would be shaped and molded into the image of Christ in our daily lives so that the world would look at us and see Jesus. Would you do that in this church? Would you do that in our own hearts, we pray. Amen.